the Apostle John wrote his three letters, which we find at the end of the New Testament. He wrote those to his church. He was nearing the end of his life. The first letter of John, he wrote to his dear little children. And he uses that phrase nine times. To help them find assurance of personal salvation. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he writes... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Because John knew that when you are sure of your salvation, you can have fellowship with God and God's people. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You can experience joy, as he writes in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. And to have victory over sin. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John also wrote this letter to warn believers about false teachers. In chapter 26, in verse 26 of chapter 2. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Both the Apostle Peter and John were concerned about purity of doctrine in the church. And we should be too. Let us pray. Lord, let us come to this word of yours as you have produced it through your servant John the Apostle. Let us hear it and let us learn from it. Let us know more about our relationship to Christ as we Read it and try to understand what it means to us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to John, the first letter of John. The first letter of John, chapter 1. And we are looking specifically at verses 1 to 4 of that letter. In future sermons, we will hopefully look through the whole the whole of first uh, john and the other two letters as well but for the time being we're going to look at the first four verses of john's letter 
and his opening words serve as an introduction. And they present us with a grammatical triangle, a, a grammatical tangle in which phrases pile up one on another as John attempts to compress into a single paragraph ideas that he will develop throughout the whole letter. And if you read this letter, you will immediately see, and especially in these four, first four verses, you will immediately see the similarity with the opening of John's Gospel. In each opening of the Gospel and the letter, the Logos, or the Word of God, is central. Yet the two paragraphs do not run parallel to each other. Instead, they are complementary, which suggests that the Gospel was completed well before this letter was written. In the Gospel of John, we learn about the history and work of the Word in creation. We learn about his incarnation into the world, his rejection and the eternal life he offered. Now in this letter, John takes up two themes, the reality of the incarnation that which we have heard, seen and touched. And he takes up its importance in salvation, the importance of that incarnation of Christ in salvation. And he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John seems to emphasise the centrality of the incarnate word as if there were some controversy swirling around in the church at that time, as if some were disputing whether or not the word of God had actually become flesh. That is, complete human body, human flesh in Jesus Christ. And as we shall see, right and correct thinking about Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which right and correct theology is based. While our suspicions about theological controversy will come to light in later sermons, especially when we look at chapter 4, in these first four verses, we can see that John's emphasis is entirely pastoral and it is practical. His mind is on the fabric of Christian community and how its fellowship and its joy are being affected by differing beliefs and ideas concerning Jesus Christ. He is of the belief that intimate fellowship in the Christian community is only possible when there is 100% agreement about the identity and presence of Jesus. Let us look at the first part of verse 1. The incarnate word. The strained grammar of those first three verses underline, John, underline John's emphasis on the centrality of the incarnate word. He emphasises the object of proclamation, that is the word, rather than the act of proclaiming itself. Therefore John is saying that the whole sweep of Jesus' life bears importance to his subject. 
not simply particular events or even the abstract appearance of God in history. In Christ, God walked with man. God walked with humans. God walked on this earth. And anyone who had contact with that reality, anyone who had heard, seen and touched that reality could never make it less than the central part of his belief system. It is pivotal to each of the apostles. And all this is to say that John's singular interest is not some abstract doctrine about Jesus or the importance of preaching about Jesus. Rather, it is the reality, the reality of Jesus' personhood, his incarnation or his entry into history. He is described as the word, not as if Jesus is some abstract idea, a message that enlightens. This term rather goes back to the gospel at its start where Jesus is called the word as a personal title of importance to both Greek and Jewish hearers. The word is the creative self-expression of God by which the universe was made. We go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God made. And thus, when we get to this verse, in this letter, John writes that the word was from the beginning. And in the first verse of his gospel, John writes that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. These statements set forth that great Christian thought. He who existed from limitless eternity has entered time and space and taken up residence here on earth. Hallelujah. Therefore, of critical importance is the relationship of this word to human history. These present verses in John's letter serve as a reflection, an expansion perhaps, on his gospel's first chapter's primary verse. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. To get rid, to get rid of any suggestion that this appearing in history was imagined or impartial, John speaks graphically of the sensory, the sensory confirmation, the hearing, the seeing, the touching that accompanied this revelation. Let us look at the word of life, the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. Jesus was not simply any word. And nor is this word about life, as if it were a message that explained the meaning of living. The final phrase of verse 1 is pivotal because it explains the importance of this revelation. 
Once again, the fourth gospel's prologue in John 1 verse 4 gives us a clue. There we learn that this incarnate word is the source of life. John says in his gospel, in him was life. And now he says in his letter, in those opening verses, concerning the word of life. So those words concerning the word of life in this letter is almost an aside inserted into the present paragraph to make absolutely certain that the eternal life described here is grounded in the historical events of Jesus' life. In other words, eternal life is not the byproduct of some enlightenment or some knowledge acquired mystically. Eternal life is historically anchored in the incarnate word. God become flesh. Jesus Christ, our saviour, who worked, who worked and walked with mankind. The life of God has been channeled to us through an historical event. An event that John says has been witnessed has been verified by people who saw it, people who heard it, and people who touched it. It is interesting that in verse 2, the authority behind, behind John's affirmations is not merely some tradition in doctrinal convention. It springs from experience. The repeated emphasis on personal experience, seeing and testifying what was revealed to us is not just a way of showing up his defence, of shoring up his defence of the incarnation. John's authority rests in what he knows to be true because he has touched it. He has heard it. He has seen it. He is making a compelling appeal. He is offering a testimony not just to orthodox theology, but to a living word, Jesus Christ, whose reality is the principal reference point in his life. This was also the criteria for apostolic appointment. When replacing Judas Iscariot, Matthias was a candidate because he had seen Jesus Christ. He had heard Jesus Christ. He had touched Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. The word and fellowship. So embracing this word, experiencing this life, gaining this reference point, these are all prerequisites for Christian community. The purpose of John's letter is fellowship as he writes in the first part of verse 3, so that you also may have fellowship with us. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which means to have something in common. It may describe a shared labour, such as the fishing of James, John, Simon, or the common enjoyment of some gift or experience that we should have as Christians, such as the grace of God, the blessings of the gospel, or the infilling of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the crucial part of John's thought and the purpose of his writing to his church at that time. Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause. Nor is it a school or academy or an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It cannot be so superficial. Christian community is partnership in experience. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience in Jesus Christ. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. They talk about this experience. They urge each other to grow more deeply in it. And they discover that through it, they begin to build a life together unlike any shared life in the world. But Christian community is not merely horizontal. It is not just a social phenomenon. It is just not me reacting with you and you reacting with me. No. John states that this fellowship is also with the Father and his Son, Christ Jesus. The second part of verse 3. This puts another dimension to the meaning of community. It is not just It is not just you and me and me and you. It is now me and God and Jesus, you and God and Jesus, both of us, the three of us, all together. So there is now a vertical relationship as well. Fellowship is not just the coincidence of a shared experience of God where we compare our private spiritual walks It is living and experiencing the Father and the Son together as believers. Christian fellowship is triangular. My life in fellowship with Christ. Your life in fellowship with Christ. My life in fellowship with your life. The mystical union that we each enjoy with Christ becomes the substance that binds the church together. In verse 4, John adds that the net result of such a community will be joy. As he writes there, we write this to make our joy complete. And this is a benefit, a byproduct of a genuinely Christ-centred fellowship. The themes seen here bear a close parallel in Jesus' teaching. In John chapter 15. There, Jesus, it's part of the discourse to the disciples. Abiding in Christ, the vine, is the way to becoming Jesus' disciple. Verse 8 of chapter 15. And experiencing his joy. Verse 11. Moreover, our union with the vine is the prerequisite for loving one another verses 12 to 17 of chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. Christian community once again grows from a matured relationship with God in his son Jesus Christ. And no doubt, where this relationship with Christ is absent, such community and fellowship 
is an impossibility. How do we then bring this writing of John's into our today? From my study of John's letter, I believe his emphasis, his emphasis is in writing to a community where there is considerable disunity. Factions have broken out and severe theological disagreements have undermined the church's vitality. From 1 to 4 of chapter 1 and and verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4, it is clear that the incarnation of Christ is under attack. The reality of Christ is under, under attack. The personhood of Christ is under attack. <clears throat> now it is believed that though the opponents of that time, because we were getting near to the end of the first century, they may, they may well have been the early Gnostics, who, if they affirmed the divinity of Jesus at all, if they, if they did own up to uh, that Jesus was existed, they could not agree that he was genuinely physical in any manner. To them, physical properties could not share anything with the spiritual realm. Their belief was that the body was separate from the soul. The body, the physical, was separate from the spirit and, spirit and spiritual things. And what they were introducing was that the body could go off and do anything it liked. As if it had no consequence and no bearing on the spiritual. You and I both know that that is not right. The body and the soul, the body and the spiritual are very closely linked. So, therefore, in this first century diverse community, Christians were trying to discern what was essential for Christian identity. What would identify them as Christians? And it is not a far stretch to a church of today where factions are insisting that any doctrine that divides should be set aside so that no one will be offended. We mustn't upset the apple cart. We mustn't upset anyone. In other words, we accept compromise and take the path of least resistance so as no one will be upset. We water down our faith. Now, in addition... John has on his mind the quality and character of Christian fellowship that should accompany our Christian life. The repeated emphasis on love by him throughout this whole letter suggests that there were some pretty harsh debates going on in his congregation at the time. Christians were at each other's throats trying to figure out how to live in an environment where there was such diversity. And gosh, isn't that the same as what we face today? Therefore, even here, in verses 1 to 4, John's urgency springs from a desire to restore fellowship and joy in an otherwise divided community. Curiously, curiously however, his approach is not simply ethical. John does not merely list what behaviours were happening and were unbecoming to Christians and then put another appropriate list beside it of the virtues that we should have, such as Paul does in Galatians chapter 5 and 
Colossians 3. John unites the themes of Christ and community as he exhorts the church that a correct and right understanding of Jesus should tell us how we are to live together. Jesus' incarnation is the central doctrine of our Christian faith. Embracing this historical Jesus and continuing to bear witness to him, seeing, touching, hearing, should be at the centre of our lives together. Jesus Christ as God in the flesh cannot, cannot be marginalised, cannot be jettisoned, cannot be done away with. Now I know the precise context with the so-called Gnostics, Gnostic heretics, is not so much a part of our world today. But what may come close is the trend of some who seek to forge a new unity among all religious movements. You know the old chestnut, we all pray to the same God? Well, every time they try to do that, to forge this new unity among religious movements, their first order of business is to dispense dispense with the centrality of Christ. Their first order of business is to get rid of Christ. Some New Age religions likewise try to inherit the centre of Jesus, of his teaching. But they all want to leave his personhood behind. They want to deny that he lived, walked, breathed on this earth. So, we must look for themes that bridge John's context and ours. Two themes come to mind. John, number one, John is wrestling with the essence of Christian identity. What is the essential core of belief that distinguishes the Christian? What is the doctrine? The one that we cannot dismiss that we cannot compromise on, the one that is at the heart of our faith, we will return to this again and again as we go through this letter, that that the theology of the incarnation is for John the core issue of thought, our basic doctrine, our central doctrine. And the other theme John is looking at and is describing and is essential to us is the basis of Christian fellowship. Within the church, the quality of our life together is essential to fulfilling our mandate as God's people. But however, should we pursue harmony and unity of purpose at the expense of our faith? Does achieving harmony and unity of purpose mean having to put aside the central doctrine of our faith? Let's see if we can apply these verses, this paragraph, to our today. We live in a culture that is eager for religious experience. There are reports that 90% of the population believes in a God or gods that have power over the universe. So as a result, religious tolerance 
and, exper exper and experimentation are commonplace. Furthermore, when asked if all of the world's religions essentially prayed to the same God, 64% of the adult public agrees. In the Christian church, 46% of, of those people who call themselves evangelicals and 48% of those who call themselves born again agree that we all pray to the same God. Among adults who simply describe themselves as church attenders, 62% said they believed that also. This is, astonish this is astonishing. Within the pews of our churches, two-thirds of the people do not believe in the exclusive character of the Christian message. In the light of these findings, both inside and outside the church, how will we define our life together as Christians? What will be the essential character of Christian thought and community? John's first letter to his churches forces us to ask these questions about our Christian identity. Number one, what does it mean to hold to the doctrine of incarnation? The doctrine of the incarnation. John places before us the peculiar, peculiar, peculiarity, we'll call it, or the particularity of Christian thought. At the centre of our faith is the entrance of Jesus Christ into history as a definitive revelation of God. This is an event that cannot be jettisoned. It cannot be redefined as a myth or compared with the religious revelations offered by others such as Muhammad, Joseph Smith and other New Age prophets and so on. Jesus Christ is definitive. Throughout the world, Christians are often tempted to forge new alliances in order to achieve noble ends. This is particularly true in our Western world, where multiple faiths live side by side. The difficulty becomes acute when we find ourselves in interfaith dialogues that try to build unity, particularly to, for commendable social programs. As a united front is needed, all sides sit down and negotiate and they press for a common theological denominator. Some might call it the lowest common denominator. But they press for a common theological denominator that is going to be the basis for their prayer, their worship and their ethics. And it goes without saying that the emphasis on the uniqueness of Christ has to be set aside. So, is it possible to conduct ourselves as Christians and exclude the place of Jesus Christ? Should we abstain from any such involvement or should we just cease to call them Christian encounters? If Christ is offensive to others, do we continue on in ministry and deny the central event of our faith? Or do we hold fast to what we affirm? What do we do, brothers and sisters? The Apostle John would say that there is no Christianity of Jesus. There is no Christianity if Jesus is not at the centre. 
Say that again. The Apostle John says, and we should be saying the same, there is no Christianity if Jesus is not at its centre. Christian means to be Christ-like. For God's sakes, we are Christians. We cannot be Christian without Christ. But perhaps there is a bigger problem here. The more pressing question of whether it is appropriate for Christians to have a strategic silence about Jesus Christ when we talk to others of other faiths and other persuasions. Let's not mention Jesus just yet. When the time is right, uh, when trust is secure, then the central theme of our faith, Jesus Christ, uh, will be heard. Of course he will. The difficulty, of course, arises when that strategic silence is no strategy at all, but a quiet concession to pluralism and tolerance. In other words, we never get around to telling them about Jesus. The time is never right. The second question we need to look at is should theological distinctives be set aside for the unity of the church? The issue of pluralism becomes even more problematic when the dialogue takes place within the church itself. Evangelicals often find themselves living and working in a mainline denomination or local congregations where adherence to particular orthodox doctrines brings tension. Charismatic Christians feel the same when they try to share the preciousness of their experiences and yet discover that their very presence risks bringing disunity. In order to maintain unity, a theological lowest common denominator is often sought. A minimalist doctrine, umbrella, that excludes no one At what point does right belief become more important than church unity? These first four verses of John suggest that at least one doctrine, one conviction cannot be dismissed. Any minister, any Christian who does not embrace the reality of God in history, any believer who can be cavalier about the definitive event in salvation history, namely Jesus Christ as God among us, Emmanuel, if they do not embrace that, they have departed significantly from the faith of the early church. I recognise that this opens up a lot of other questions. What about other doctrines such as the virgin birth, um, our Christian identity? What about... Uh, doctrine, our scripture, charismatic gifts, the sacraments, the ordination of women. Whatever we make of those issues, John would have our starting point be the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus in history is the touchstone from which all other doctrines emerge. 
regardless of how one feels about these other subjects, John would anchor the starting point or the litmus test of Christianity elsewhere. The absence of the incarnate Christ is John's test for a church. Other concerns and other doctrines are legitimate and important, but they are not central. John reminds us that Christ's uniqueness is at the centre of our theological identity. Different theological debates of the church often lose sight of the larger question of Christ on the border between the church and the world. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ is the scandal of Christianity that sets us apart from the world. The word became flesh is the one theme that we cannot get rid of, that we cannot jettison, no matter what the benefit or what the temptation. So what... And this is John's third question. What does it mean to see, touch and hear Jesus today? It seems clear to me that John is trying to describe a compelling experience for himself and the first generation of believers. But it is less clear what that means to believers who lived after the first century. Of course we might say that this compelling experience belonged only to that generation and all that subsequent gen- and all subsequent gen- generations must live with reference to that experience a touching from afar as it were but i believe that john wants more than this the gospel of john for instance suggests that there will be a continuity of jesus's experience for all generations and not just the first In John chapter 14, Jesus promises all who love him that he will never leave his followers. He will never leave us as orphans. Verse 18. And that those who love him and are obedient to him will become Christ's new dwelling place. Verse 23. In other words, John's theology does not see the ascension as the end of Christ's presence. Christ's spirit given to his followers is indeed his own spirit. Even in this letter of John's in chapter 3 and verse 24 says clearly, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. Therefore, a necessary dimension of Christian discipleship is the ongoing communion of the believer with the Lord. But is this a mystical experience? An ecstatic or charismatic experience? How do we commune with the Lord in a way that corresponds to John's experience? At least we can say what it is not. It is not just doing Christian things, although obedience to his word is a part of it. It is not just giving intellectual assent to a set of doctrines, although believing the right things is part of it as well. Christian discipleship must be experiential. It must be personal in the sense that the person of Jesus indwells our life and makes himself known. Using John's terms in verse 3 of chapter 1, 
The believer has fellowship with the Father and the Son. This is why John knows that true Christian community is hinged on true experiences of Jesus. In this letter, he desires a sort of intimacy that unites spiritual realities with life together. On the other hand, when church members meet together and no one can speak of the way Christ is penetrating and healing and leading the chief areas of life, it is doubtful we could call this fellowship. Furthermore, such experiences of Jesus form the basis of Christian authenticity. John writes with authority because he knows what he says is true, not because of reason but because of experience. Today, the authenticity of our faith is likewise linked to the vitality of Jesus' life within us. Jesus, if, if Jesus is a doctrine, our testimony will be hollow. But if Jesus is a person, our testimony will be real. It will be potent. It will touch the world. So we must believe in the incarnation, God became flesh. God dwelt among us. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have heard him. Do not let Jesus just be someone you've heard about, someone you know about. Jesus is a person that has got to share his life with you. Then your testimony will be alive and will be potent the rest of the world let us pray heavenly father we pray lord this day that you will help us to believe you will help us to know the indwelling of jesus christ christ with us because of john's testimony lord john wants us to know that christ is with us he is with us now dear god let us not face the world without knowing the assurance of Christ in our lives. Yes, Lord, we know what he did for us. We know, we must know it, we must believe it, we must share in it, that he lived the life, a perfect life, a life we couldn't lead. And he took the punishment that we should have had. But Lord, he triumphed over death and through the resurrection, he has given us eternal life as well. We must place our whole faith, hope and trust in him so that we can spend an eternity with God our Father. Dear God, this day, let us know the indwelling of Jesus Christ in our lives so that we can be a positive influence in the world where we are. We pray this in Christ's name.